Hey everybody, it is the time of year where you got to clean up that backyard, get it ready for the winter, and Steel has products just for you. They got year-round products, let's be honest. They have gas-powered, electric, and battery-powered, which I love. Blowers, chainsaws, trimmers, you name it, they have it. And the way to find all of their products is go to SteelUSA.com. That's S-T-I-H-L steelusa.com and you'll get a long and uh, beautiful look at all of their uh, product from you know kind of people that don't have a big yard to people that have you know acreage or professionals they have every product out there and if you need to find a dealer there's one probably around the corner because they have more than 10,000 nationwide and you can find them at steeldealers.com. That's S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. Uh, I've always told you I have a garage full of their products. I love their products. Even if I don't have something to do, sometimes just going out there and messing around can be fun as well. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll get a lot out of all of their stuff. So go to steeldealers.com. That's S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. Boyer's Coffee. Start my day with Boyer's Coffee. And in fact, uh, as I tape this program, it's midday and I got another cup of Boyer's uh, going right here uh, in my home office. So Boyer's Coffee is terrific. They've been brewing coffee in this region since 1965. They're the original legendary Rocky Mountain Roaster. It's the holiday season if you haven't checked and if you have a list and you're looking for uh, items that would be a really nice gift for people you're close to, people you work with, uh, neighbors, that sort of thing. Hey, it's really simple. Go to boyerscoffee.com and you'll see a, a wide range of coffee products that you can make a gift. In fact, they'll put a bow on it and you can have it sent right to their address and boom, you, you check something off your list uh, in terms of the holidays. It's boyerscoffee.com. Boyerscoffee.com around, as I said, since 1965. They have great food truck promotions up at 73rd and Washington if you're in the neighborhood. And they have all kinds of great deals and presents, as I said, for the holiday season. Boyerscoffee.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, former pitching great and longtime Giants broadcaster Mike Kruka breaking down the surprising 2021 season for the Giants. But this is the 138th year of, of Giants baseball, and this is the most games they ever won in a single season. And also a few great stories. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and leave a comment to help other people find the show. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is program number 122 for the uh, Drew Goodman podcast. And uh, as I say each week, I'm glad that uh, you join uh, on and uh, and tell your friends about it. In fact, uh, occasionally people reach out via Twitter. In fact, a couple of people did today and said they enjoy the podcast. That makes me feel good, and, it, uh, and I'm glad that you're able to... Uh, get to utilize it, whether you're working out or you're driving to work or that sort of thing. And it brings you a little bit of uh, entertainment and insight into the sports world. And we have a really good interview coming up. In fact, this will be a two-parter. Mike Kruko has great stories, the longtime television broadcaster for the San Francisco Giants. Great pairing with Dwayne Kuyper. We'll talk more about Kruka in a little bit, but you're going to enjoy uh, our conversation this week and next week as well. Hey, last night, as we taped this uh, broadcast or podcast, I should say, I was doing a broadcast of the University of Colorado home opener or opener overall against Montana State in basketball. And Tad Boyle's team last year went 23-9, and nine, went to the second round of the NCAAs. And I did uh, a number of their games last year, but because of COVID, there was no one in the gymnasium, right? It was just us and two basketball teams playing. And it was great to work. It was great to watch college hoops, but it's a completely, completely different atmosphere, completely different animal when there are people in the house. And there was somewhere uh, around 7,500 at the CU Event Center last night. And Tad, kiddingly going into the game, I, I say kiddingly, but he was really serious. He said, we've done a terrible job scheduling because playing Montana State 
out of the gate is not how I would like to begin this season with such a young team. They graduated McKinley Wright. He's now in the G League. Um, there were three other veteran players, Dallas Walton, uh, Deshaun Schwartz, and um, and and also uh, Jariah Horn. almost forgot about him, who transferred. They had fifth years, and they went to uh, Schwartz, to George Mason. Uh, interestingly, Jariah Horn, who was at Tulsa, went back to Tulsa after a really nice uh, one year at the University of Colorado. And Dallas Walton, who's an Arvada kid, uh, he went back east and is at Wake Forest. So there is eight freshmen on the CU men's basketball team. They had one of the best recruiting classes in the country last year. We've never talked about men's basketball in that regard at CU. Ted Boyle's done a a marvelous job, um, and occasionally he's had a player that develops into an NBA type player. But they were the number, they had the number one ranked team in the Pac-12 when it came to recruiting class this year and uh, a consensus top 15 class. So he's really put Colorado on the national map when it comes to men's basketball. But still, you're talking about a lot of 18-year-olds playing against a veteran Montana State team. And he said, man, this is going to be a handful. And it was. It was a fist fight. It was a great game. And I, I don't throw that term around, you know, frivolously said that many times in the past. We throw uh, too many um, grandiose terms around, um, and and we should use them when they apply. Well, last night was a 94-90 overtime win for Colorado against Montana State, and it was terrific. It was a wonderful atmosphere. The crowd really got into it, especially late in the second half, because Colorado was down by basically 10, roughly, uh, the entire second half. And uh, they come storming back late. They tie it up with a three-pointer from Elijah Parquet, who's always been known his first uh, few years as a prime defensive player. Um, he showed, uh, you know, offensive ability last night, hit some really big shots, none bigger than the one to tie it uh, very late in the game, goes to overtime, and Colorado wins it 94-90. to uh, Just a blast, man. And I worked with uh, the legendary... Former coach and, and uh, great analyst. You see him on ESPN and Big Saturday all the time and, and Big Monday as well. Fran Fritchilla. And, um, we, you know, we hit it off. We, we talked the other day on the phone and then we had lunch uh, yesterday and, and I really enjoyed working with him. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a walking encyclopedia of knowledge about basketball, college, NBA. He literally, truly knows everyone uh, in the sport. But he's a, he's a Brooklyn guy. So we, we did our New York thing and, and chit-chatted away all afternoon. I'm going to get Fran on uh, coming up here in the not-too-distant future on the podcast. And we'll talk college basketball. And he's got, you know, great stories naturally. So uh, look forward to that. But a great start uh, for the CU men. And I don't want to leave out the CSU uh, men up north. I know the women also uh, got a win uh, for the Rams yesterday, but the CSU men uh, under Nico Medved picked for the first time ever uh, in the preseason to win the Mountain West just ahead of San Diego State. You know San Diego State year in and year out's top 25 uh, program, uh, and, and they've kind of carried the mantle uh, a lot of times for the conference. But that's how well thought of CSU is. They're getting a lot of votes for the top 25 in both the AP poll and the coaches poll. And they opened up, they had a tough one opening up. And Nico Medved wants to play a tough schedule uh, to help their resume. So they have Oral Roberts come into Moby yesterday. And if you recall, Oral Roberts was a Sweet 16 team last year. They have a preseason All-American guard on their team. They have a couple of uh, high-profile transfers. They did lose a, a big man, but it seems like everybody loses somebody each year. Anyhow, they they blew out Oral Roberts. They scored 109 points, 109-80, the final score. So Colorado and Colorado State both off to uh, really nice starts and uh, we'll be following those guys, uh, both those programs, closely as the winter unfolds. On to football. So I'm watching on Sunday, 
And you all know I'm a big New York Giant fan. Grew up in New York. It's it's kind of you know one of the the last teams I can just be an unadulterated fan of. And I'm sitting there watching after I I, I watched Colorado State lose to Wyoming on Saturday. Um, great win for Colorado over Oregon State. Uh, I was up in Boulder earlier that day. I couldn't stay unfortunately for the game. Uh, the Bronco game I'm watching simultaneously with the Giant game. Now, the Broncos had a great win down in Dallas. Dallas looked awful. I and mean, they've, they've had a wonderful year. Dak Prescott missed one game, and it looked like he missed 30 years of playing football. Uh, he was off at quarterback. But no matter, you give the Broncos a lot of credit. But the point I was trying to warm to is that, you know, initially I'm watching, I'm like, why do all my teams stink? in football right now. I mean, Colorado, as I said, good win, but they have such a long way to go. We've, we've watched that, right? Colorado State, uh, they've had moments this year, but they've had more bad moments. They, they you know, had an opportunity to win the game at Utah State and, and kind of bungled that, that field goal attempt. They had to rush it. Uh, they played Iowa tough, so they get a, a moral victory there. They had the nice win at Toledo. But it's the same thing week after week. Whenever they play their quote-unquote rivals, you know, they had an 11-point lead against Boise State twice. They lose to Boise. They still have never beaten Boise State, and they were vulnerable this year. It's not a great Boise State team. You're playing a Wyoming team last week, and I have the utmost respect for Craig Bowl. But they had lost four in a row. They couldn't throw the ball. They had their best wideout who was out, and and they ran up and down the field running the football against Colorado State. And they lose again. And then, you know, again, I'm watching my Giants. I know the Giants beat the Raiders this week, but they they have such a long way to go also. As I said, good win for the Broncos. But overall, I'm saying, man, my football teams, especially the college teams in-state other than the Air Force Academy. Troy Calhoun, year in and year out, gets it done. They had a tough loss this past week um, to Army. Uh, those are always going to be great battles when the service academies get together. But I was like, what's going on, man? My football teams. Anyhow, one thing that was going on as I'm watching one of these games, I saw a promo for a new film coming out. Clifford, the big red dog movie. And you're saying, Goodman, where the hell are you going with this right now? Well, I have to share with you that when my boys were little, of all the programs we as parents sit there and uh, watch with our children, my favorite was Clifford the Big Red Dog. It wasn't Teletubbies. It wasn't, you know, any of these other shows. I mean, some were okay. Some were better than others. But I really liked Clifford the Big Red Dog, right? Really liked Clifford the Big Red Dog. It's, um, as I said, my favorite little kid show. And as they're going through the promo, I'm like, cool, they're making a movie. Uh, that's going to be wonderful for families and, and for children. And I saw that it was rated PG. And I'm thinking, how the hell is Clifford the Big Red Dog a PG movie? Is it, Does G not exist anymore? General audiences? How... Can Clifford the Big Red Dog have something in it that's racy enough that it would have to have a rating of PG as opposed to just G, general audiences? Maybe something's changed and I'm not aware of that. But um, that's why I was talking about Clifford the Big Red Dog. Um, so I have to make plans to go see Clifford the Big Red Dog. Maybe. All right, Major League Baseball free agency is going to be an ongoing conversation. And I've been looking at a lot of lists and predictions where the top 50 free agents will go and what they potentially will get paid. You know, a number of different baseball sources and writers have come out with pieces that you can find uh, if you so desire. And I've studied them. You know the Rockies need to be active in revamping certain areas of their roster. They, they need more power. They need to be much better offensively. The, the things you know, the things we've discussed ad nauseum. So I was looking, I was saying, all right, well, Kyle Schwarber, where is he going to fall? And 
the general consensus is it's going to be three to four, maybe on the outside five years. And, you know, the AAV, annual average value, is going to be somewhere 15, 17 million a year. Again, not my money. It's not my money. I can't spend the Rockies' money. Uh, but, you know, you would think that's doable. Is it is it four times 15 at 60 million for Kyle Schwarber? Uh, you know I'm all in on Schwarber uh, because he's not, a, I know he's not a great outfielder, but he's the power source. You can DH him. He can play the outfield and be serviceable. He can play a little bit of first base and, you know, spell CJ Crone. They, they, they did that a little bit this year with Boston. They're going to have a lot of suitors. I understand that. Any player that you want as a fan of the Rockies uh, means that probably other teams want them uh, as well. But I just wanted to give you kind of a, a little bit of an update on him. Castellanos, probably same deal, but a little bit more money uh, because Castellanos you know, has um, a, a couple of more years of high production right now than Kyle Schwarber. Uh, but I've been on that kind of Kyle Schwarber bandwagon. Um, I'm not going to go over every player. Uh, once again, there are some that I think have put themselves in the hundred plus million category that maybe were not there prior uh, to this year. Uh, and the first guy I think of in that regard, who would be a nice fit for the Rockies also, nice fit for a lot of teams, and that's Marcus Simeon, who had a phenomenal year with Toronto, kind of on a, on a, on a one year prove it type of deal uh, for around 18 million last year for Toronto. Something else to keep in mind, uh, if in all likelihood Trevor Story signs somewhere else, and by the way, the numbers, the consensus on Story is, and this is kind of what I felt, was he was going to be in the five-year, 110, $115, million range, not the two, 250 or even 300 that many had predicted before the season, that some are still predicting uh, after we watched what Tati signed for, what we watched Lindor signed for, that Correa and Corey Seager will get close to that in that 300 range. But all of the pieces that I've read, when it comes to story, far less money. Still a ton of money, still you know in the 100 million range, but nowhere close to, I think, what many thought... Uh, a year ago for a couple of reasons. One, you know, maybe a couple of years older than, you know, when you talk about the Correas of the world and also, you know, some question marks, um, not so much defensively because he has great range, but when it comes to the arm. Uh, again, we'll see how it all shakes out. So if he goes and does leave the Rockies, the Rockies need someone to play shortstop. And I think in a perfect world, they'd like Brendan Rodgers to stay at second base. Has comfort there. Uh, not to say that he can't get some reps over at short. He believes in himself at short. But I think they want to keep him at second base, let him continue to grow there defensively, and let him not have the burden of playing on the left side, which is more difficult, and have that detract potentially from what he does offensively. That means somebody's got to play shortstop, and it's more of a short-term fix because the Rockies are, and seemingly accurately, enamored with a young player, 20-year-old in their system by the name of Ezekiel Tovar, who's having a solid Arizona Fall League. Nothing off the charts, but he's been solid down there. Can really pick it, talk to a number of different people I respect, he can play major league shortstop defensively right now. The bat is progressing. It's got a little bit of pop in it. Um, but he's probably in all likelihood, you know, at least a year, if not two, away. So who's going to be that stopgap? There's a lot of ways you could go. I mean, Chris Owings, the Rockies have had the last couple of years, and and Chris has had moments where he's very good. The problem is there have been moments he hasn't been able to stay healthy. He's always been more of a super utility guy um, after initially having an opportunity to start down in Arizona. I mean, could you piecemeal it with a Chris Owings, with a Garrett Hampson? 
Sure, I think ideally you'd like to have a guy who you put out there every day. There's a couple of names to think about that are veteran guys that you could get on a one-year deal. Uh, Jose Iglesias is out there. Freddie Galvis is out there. You know, solid guys. Iglesias has always been a really good glove. You know, decent bats. Nothing that you're going to get super excited about. You hope that the Rockies, you know, star level moves, the ones that, that move the, the meter, the excitement meter, uh, come in the outfield slash DH spot. But uh, I did want to throw those couple of names at you in terms of guys that maybe could bridge the gap before Ezekiel Tovar arrives at the big league level. All right, we're going to continue with baseball right now with the aforementioned Mike Kruko. Uh, I, I've gotten to know Kruko pretty well over the years. Uh, he had an outstanding big league career, won 124 major league games, sub-4 ERA, came up with the Cubs, went to the Phillies, finished with the Giants. And uh, he's become you know, a near-legendary figure in major league broadcasting, especially in Northern California, teaming with Dwayne Kuyper. They provide a very entertaining uh, product, and uh, oftentimes they've had a great product on the field to talk about. They certainly did this year with the 107-win San Francisco Giants. So this is part one of, uh, of an entertaining conversation and a wide-ranging conversation with longtime broadcasting baseball analyst for the San Francisco Giants on the TV side, Mike Kruko, and it's brought to you by Ideal Home Owners. Well, listen, you and I usually get to see each other a whole lot during the year because being inside the division, you play each other 19 times. One of the uh, one of the bad things, uh, one of the many bad things, obviously, about COVID the last couple of years, you don't get to see your buddies and your, your brethren in broadcasting. So how are you? Hey, things are good. I mean, we're coming off an incredible year, uh, none of which <laughs> any of us expected. And uh, it was just uh, a joy ride for all of us who've been part of this rivalry with the Dodgers. And uh, so, I, you know, we're still kind of tingling and mixed emotions for me because uh, we got to broadcast this incredible year. And um, and yet my partner, Dwayne Kuyper, was not there for a good time of it because uh, he uh, was ill and, uh, and dealing with some... Uh, uh, with his illness, so uh, it was a very emotional year all the way around for me. Yeah. For how, how's Kipe doing? He's doing well. I mean, he uh, his chemotherapy is done, and uh, he had a little surgery, and uh, now he's recovering and, and healing, and anticipating coming back next year and getting back in the booth. Awesome, awesome. We'll send send him uh, send him my best. And I know for for Rockies fans as well. Who you know, obviously Kipe got going with the Rockies many moons ago, but. Uh, uh, I know they admire both of you guys from afar, so please send him send him our best. I will. Thank you. You bet. Well, well Kruk, I got one of the questions I want to ask you because again, I didn't get to see you during the season. Is did you see any of this coming? I mean, prognosticators had the you know Giants in the mid seventies in win total, and I know you don't pay attention to that, but but one hundred and seven from say seventy five, that's a big delta. No, I didn't. If I, I wish I could tell you I, I could have predicted this, but look, this is the 138th year of, of Giants baseball, and this is the most games they ever won in a single season. And what's even more remarkable, it's 131 years for Dodger baseball, and 106 wins is the most wins they've ever had in a single season. So it was just completely, uh, it came out of nowhere. I thought this club could be around 500 at the trade deadline, and you know, with a couple of deals, I knew that their uh, the Giants minor league system has depth. It's got prospects, uh, and certainly uh, the type of uh, of prospects that would be able to get somebody good in a trade. And I thought if if they got to 500 by the trade deadline, a trade here, a trade there, and all of a sudden, yeah, they they might be able to make a, uh, some magic and and quite possibly get a uh, um, a wild card berth. I mean, that that's what I thought they were capable of doing, but. I thought, you know, best case scenario, it would be high 80s. Uh, you know, I didn't even speak out loud that I thought they could win 90. But <clears throat> and lo and behold, uh, you know, they didn't have a bad month. They played 600 ball every month of the season, and they wound up winning 107 games. It, uh, it completely caught all of us by surprise. It's almost, uh, you know, uh, not only you don't see that, but even when teams have – 
tremendous years. And we've all watched the Dodgers have seemingly year after year where they're producing 100-plus wins. The the Astros uh, over the last half dozen years have had, you know, several 100-plus win seasons. But as you remarked, it's generally, you know, a few great months and a couple of, you know, solid months. But it's not 600 baseball every month. At some point in time, when you climb into the booth, did you think, okay, you know, the it's going to strike midnight and Cinderella's going to have to bring the slippers back? You know, I didn't. Uh, after watching them consistently play great defense, and, and and the other thing, too, that stood out about this club was the depth of great at-bats that they had. It went one through eight every night, and, and the six coming off the bench basically gave the same at-bat. And the same at-bat was a a discipline to be able to go and stay on the pitch that you're looking for to be able to set up for a pitch for a movement for a side of the plate for a speed and stay on it i mean i heard things this year from hitting coaches and the giants have three of them donny ecker was uh the lead dog in that and i heard hitting instructors tell guys who just came back from taking an uh an at bat where they struck out on a called strike three Come walk him in the dugout and say, that was a great at-bat. You stayed disciplined to your approach. That was completely acceptable, and I, it, it blew my mind. But it was an example of, of just how much they stress mental discipline and the ability to stay on a pitch. And I, We all play baseball. And how many times in our at-bats do we remember as kids where you'd sit there, look for a fastball, and some guy throw a little nickel, um, you know, roundhouse, uh, high school, Harry soft slider or whatever, and you wave through it, you break down through it. You go back and take a look at the Giants at bats consistently this year, um, and they didn't do that. They stayed on their back leg. They stayed balanced through their swings. And, yeah, they took some called strike threes right down the middle. But you know what? I think this is what stood out about this club that I thought was unique and something I'd never really seen before, the depth of that discipline uh, in, uh, through the lineup and on the bench. Yeah, I mean, you usually see somebody who's a hack, and he's up there, and he's just going to flail. But, man, the discipline to the pitch was something that really set this team apart. So I started to believe in it right around the trade deadline. And I expected a lot out of this club, and they delivered. And I really thought they had enough to go all the way based on the type of discipline that they had and the type of consistency uh, of discipline with their at-bats and the type of consistency that they had um, with their uh, with their defense. Um, and the other thing, too, and I'm getting a little long-winded with this. I don't mean to be. No, no, no but the, they, they hear me enough. enough. I want to hear you. But the the bullpen came. I did not see the bullpen doing what they did, and they were they were they were leaders. They they they, they were fantastic. They had more saves. They had uh, their ERA was low. There there was consistency in in how they uh, came in and threw strikes. Um, I mean, everything that you would want out of a staff, they gave this club. I mean, you don't win 107 games by accident. You have to have a lot of things working. You have to have good health. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they kept it together through, through the six month season. And, and so I was actually a little disapp- disappointed that they didn't go all the way. I thought they could. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a difficult proposition in all sports, but baseball in particular. I mean, truly the hot team. Uh, I, I think often wins. Look at the Rockies run uh, in 2007 uh, to the World Series. Look at the Braves, you know, ultimately winning it all. And, and they were a team that won 88 and, and weren't over 500 until well into August. I want to go back, though, Mike, to something you were talking about uh, in terms of offensive approach. Um, one of the things that's changed, and I'll allow you to expound on this, you guys are have been extremely innovative. Farhan Zaidi comes aboard, obviously one of uh, my all-time favorite guys, and I know he's a dear friend of yours, Bruce Bochy. You know, kind of old school type of guy. He move, he decides to to hang it up. Gabe Kapler comes on, and some of the innovations that that I saw from afar. You know how you guys handle batting practice on the field, where it's a live arm and it's also. You know, a pitching machine, maybe throwing right-handed sliders or, or you know, left-handed breaking balls, depending on who they were going to see that night. Um, that had to play into it, I would think. No question. And we all saw this uh, approach in batting practice. And uh, the first comment was, uh, what are they doing? You know, they've got, they've got a machine out there. 
uh, and a hitter will walk into the, the cage and he'll hold up five uh, fingers and uh, he'll say, I want five off the machine and the rest I want off a live arm. Um, and, I, and Dwayne Kuyper and I looked at each other and said, well, that, that'll last in spring training. Well, it didn't. It lasted the whole year. And what it was was a unique pitching machine that could recreate the best pitch, the best specialty pitch that you were going to see that day or that night from the opposing pitcher. Um, for example, if if you were going to see a, a Kinley Jansen, they could duplicate cut at 91, 92 miles per hour. Uh, that was right-handed cut. That would move away from a right-hander uh, and move into a lefty. Um, if there was a, a big uh, high three-quarter uh, breaking ball like Max Fried, they could recreate that and and give you the arc and the angle of the break. And um, so guys would go in there knowing what to look for and what type of movement on the specialty pitch, the premier specialty pitch that that pitcher had. And the other thing, too, is once that batting practice ended, that machine went right inside the cage behind the dugout, and uh, and that would be running all the game. Whatever that pinch hitter was going to see, whatever specialty pitch that he was going to see, they would recreate it. So he would have the ability to, to see that movement, you know, 15, 20 times, before he would actually go out there and take the at-bat. And one thing that they did this year, they set a record for pinch hit home runs. Their efficiency as a pinch hitting team was remarkable. And I think that the the pitching uh, machine that they had and the way they utilized it during spring training was uh, a big reason for the success. It was innovative and it worked. And, uh, and the other thing too, and this is getting off on the question, but you consider the age of this Giants team, and they were the oldest team in the National League. And they had their nucleus was Evan Longoria and and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt and Buster Posey um, and Johnny Cueto, all these old dogs and guys who had ten or more years in the big leagues. They don't usually have a willingness to adapt to somebody, some coach, especially a coach who doesn't have a lot of big league time, to have a coach come in and try. And, and show them ways to improve their game, and they all bought into it. The relationship between this coaching staff and this team was remarkable, and they had a, a very consistent open-mindedness throughout the club to what these teachers were telling them. And that's basically what this coaching staff was. They were teachers. And uh, and, the, and I think that was a big key to, the, to their, their success, how they handled batting practice, how they prepared – uh, their bullpens each night, how starting pitchers would, would go out there and, and, uh, and, and set their game plan up. Um, they all bought into the program, and, uh, and the results were remarkable. That was the key I was going to say about it, because you're not talking about, you know, some guys that uh, were, you know, low-service time guys, guys just trying to make it where you're saying, hey, you got to buy into this. You're talking about that nucleus of guys that not only have been around a long time, but have had a great deal of success. Mike, you played a long time. Guys are resistant to change, especially uh, you know when you get long in the tooth and you say, "Hey, I got a pretty good resume doing it my way." That's exactly right, and, and that's what blew our minds. Um, but the willingness to at least listen, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, um, Bannister. Uh, Brian Bannister and uh, and Andrew Andrew Bailey, uh, you know, they would say, "Look, this is what your arm slot is. This is what we can do to recreate the arc of your breaking ball, to tighten up the spin on your slider. This is what you can do. This is how this movement plays against these type of swings. This type of flat cut is really great for uh, a left-handed hitter who's a middle away guy. This is the type of a of a kill pitch to a left-handed hitter." That um, that will get him to swing. He's a dead low ball guy, but this is the type of break that will 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 take advantage of his of his strengths and exploit his weaknesses. And you know, this is up and down the the the, uh, the pitching staff, the starters and the relievers. And with the hitters, it was the exact opposite. This is where this guy is going to try and pitch you. This is the type of swing that you have to try and and use to beat that approach. Um, this is how you have to use the field to accentuate the swing that you're going to have once you make contact, you can. You're, it's going to open up a side of the field. I mean, all these things made sense to these guys, and they bought into it. Um, you watch Brandon Crawford go out there and completely prepare for a game differently than he had for 10 years. And here's a guy who had been a, three, a three-time a three gold glover. He wins a fourth one this year, and uh, and he was very quick to say, 
you know, it, it, this new way, these new these new coaches made me better. And that just doesn't happen for a guy who's got 10 years in. More with longtime Giants broadcaster and former big league pitcher Mike Kruko in just a moment. But uh, first this for Ideal Home Loans. Tell you every week about Ideal Home Loans. I've used them on several occasions. I continue to use them. Uh, whether it's refinancing properties or if you're in the market for a new mortgage because you just went out and bought something you're contemplating, give them a call because they're going to save you money. They're going to save you hassles. They're going to make things easy for you. I have sent a number of people to Brent Ivinson's team and they all come back really happy because they do such a thorough job and they make the process pain-free. Give them a shout, 303-867-7000. It's 303-867-7000. That's Ideal Home Loans. Uh, I've been proud to be involved with them now for a number of years, and they're working on their third decade in the state of Colorado, and uh, they also have offices down in Arizona as well. It's Brent Ivinson's team, the name, Ideal Home Loans. Their phone number, 303-867-7000. Divorce is not fun. Difficult time, emotional time, uncertain time. Been there. You need guidance. You need counsel. You need accurate information and great professionalism and understanding. And you'll find it without question at one of the top family law firms in the region in Cox, Baker, and Page. That's Cox, Baker, and Page. They've been recognized in a number of publications for their excellent work in the area of family law. They're compassionate and thorough in guiding you through a tumultuous period. Their work has been routinely recognized for its excellence. U.S. News and World Report, for instance, consistently award Laura Page and Mary Cox best lawyer distinctions. If you or someone you know is looking for counsel, reach them at coxbakerandpage.com. That's coxbakerandpage.com. Mention you heard it from me and receive a discount on your initial consultation. Now back to more with Mike Fruko. Big credit uh, to all of those veteran guys with the Giants. But, you know, Kai Correa, who is somebody that worked every day, as you know, better than I do, with those infielders, with Brandon Crawford. A couple of years ago, he was recruiting my kid to go play baseball in northern Colorado. And now he's a bench coach and an infield instructor and a guy who was a Division three college player, yet he has seemingly universal respect uh, for how he trains infielders. Well, he comes from Hawaii, and his father was a legend there. He's a coach, and uh, he was a great teacher. And uh, and I think this is the backbone of Kai Correa, um, because he would take Longoria, Crawford, uh, Donovan Solano, Wilmer Flores, Brandon Belt, all veterans, and he would show them new ways to to soften their hands, new drills that would make it fun, and yet, every time they would get they would get into this new drill, they could see where this was going. They they could see what this piece was going to do that was going to enable them to have a softer hand as they crossed over to a backhand, uh, and and ways that they they prepared themselves prior to every pitch, just little things that made big difference, uh, just angles of hand position, awaiting a ball coming your way. Um, they were big things, uh, just small little things in their footwork, which made their footwork and their balance a bit more economical, and it allowed them to get rid of the ball quicker and improve the uh, the consistency of their accuracy with their throws. All these little things, and and they loomed large in the way that they, and, and they could see it early on. And I think this has everything to do with Correa being a very good teacher. And this is what Gabe Kapler did when he put this staff together. He put together a 13-person staff. Um, the only incumbent was Ron Wotus. Everybody else was new. And everybody had the reputation as being a great teacher. And this is what they, they strive to get. And, and you, you look at the results as to how effective they were and how, how much success they had because of it. And, uh, it, it just was the, it really, I thought, was the story of this club all year long. I want to ask you, and you were involved not only with the giant Dodger rivalry as a as a player, 
you were involved with the Cubs-Cardinals rivalry as a player. Can you describe to, to people that, that may not fully understand um, the, the deep-rooted respect and, and dislike, if you will, f- uh, between these two clubs? Well, I mean, the, the Cubs and the Phil and the uh, Cardinals, rather, uh, was was my first time in the big leagues, and that was the first rivalry that I ever got to know. And uh, I've always believed, after having experienced the rivalry between the Cubs and the Cardinals and the Giants and the Dodgers, that the rivalry really comes from the fan base, because what you hear in the outfield during batting practice really forms your attitude. I mean, it, it can get, it can layer a crust on you. Because the things that are said are, are personal, uh, they're, uh, they're mean-spirited, um, and I think they're a little more personal and mean-spirited coming from the stands in L.A. and, and San Francisco than in, in, in Chicago and St. Louis. I think, for the most part, I mean, Midwest fans, they, they, they love the moment. They have fun with it. If you're out there and you're hearing some of the things from the Cardinal fans, yeah, they were mean-spirited, but they were funny. You didn't get a lot of laughs from the stuff that was being said to you in the outfield during batting practice at Dodger Stadium if you had a Giants uniform on. You just didn't. Plus, the other thing, too, is is you know, as a player, how much it means for your fans to win against the Dodgers or to lose against the Dodgers. You know how deep that burns. And we're talking about a rivalry that goes back 138 years. And it's just... It, it, it's just such a remarkable thing to be part of because no matter what year you're having as a team, when you play against the Dodgers, those games mean they, they, those games you're playing. That's your year. If you're a team, and we lost a hundred games in 1985, the only time in 138 years that the Giants lost a hundred, and yet those games where the Dodgers were spirited, they were they were that, that was our playoff game. And I think that's the beauty of a rivalry. And even when you're having a year that's not great, you still that, that rivalry gets the best out of you. So for this year to have a, one team win 107 and another team to win 106, one thing had to happen. The teams playing and going at each other, because they were so good, they, they gave everything that they had. They had to. It went down to the last game of the year, the 162nd game of the year, and the Giants won uh, and it gave them a, a 107 game season and allowed them to win the, the division, uh, for the first time in nine years that the Dodgers hadn't won it. And, uh, but both teams had incredible respect and appreciation for the other one. I mean, they, there was no cheap shot. There was no taunting. It was just game on, full respect. I need to be good to beat you baseball. And, and in the end, as we saw, as we saw both teams, they were spent. They were done. They were done because of what it took physically and mentally out of each other to play each other in that division run. Giants lost in the NLDS to the Dodgers. Dodgers lost in the NLCS to the Braves. And I truly believe that that, he, that both teams, they had nothing else to give when their season ended. Yeah. Was it disappointing at, at some level in the, in the postseason, in the uh, NLDS, that the rules didn't allow it to be a seven-game series because you know it would have gone seven. It would have gone seven, absolutely. And it would have been a two-one ball game, and the season would have ended with a check swing. I mean, in a way, I, I, it was as painful as it was for them losing in five and losing on a check swing. It, it I, I'm just glad nobody had that fate of Bill Buckner happen to any one of the players on either team. Right. I just think that uh, the purity of which they played this season and the way they went at each other, they deserve better. I wish it would have gone seven. I think the baseball world would, uh, would have preferred it to go seven. But listen, given the format that we had, that was the deal. Nobody complained about it on, 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 in, in either dugout or either clubhouse. Yeah. They just knew that you know they, they had to get ready for that game. And what they all gave, what each team gave to get that far and what they gave to try and, try and win it all, it was a beautiful thing to watch. And I mean, I think that this year was the absolute essence of the rivalry. And as good as it always is, no matter what the team's records are, for both teams to be as good as they were, the rivalry has never been better. And uh, it was just a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, it, it was a treat from afar to watch. Um, whatever level of baseball fan you are, uh, it was brilliant baseball. It was great theater. Did you see, as we talk about some individuals, did you see 
or have an inkling that that this was going to be it for Buster because uh, a guy who's had a marvelous career and has been an MVP and all of the accolades and a, and a three-time world champion, he had one of his best years this year. Well, I think he was one guy that really benefited physically from the absence of uh, the 2020 season. He didn't play. He opted out because of uh, the virus uh, because he and his wife, Kristen, had adopted uh, twins that were uh, prematurely born, and uh, they had some, you know, some high need. And uh, he was guarded uh, with their health over possibly exposing them to the coronavirus. So he he made a tough decision. Uh, he didn't play, but I do think he benefited physically. He had some really strong issues um, that curtailed his ability the previous three years with his hips, and uh, he had surgery. Um, and just the wear and tear that you have as a catcher in the big leagues. So when he came back this year, I, I I was so thrilled at what we saw early on because he had his legs back. I mean, it, you know, it, when you have a, a labrum tear in your hip, you know, it affects your your ability behind a plate. It affects your ability to, to use your legs uh, when you're taking your at-bats. And he got all that back. I mean, he was completely rehabbed and strong, and he was hitting the inside pitch again. Um, so, much, so much of the three, previous three years – I mean, there'd be games where he would go, and all at bats. I mean, he he had he had no leg strength in him. He was poking the ball to right field. So to get him to watch him come back and get his body back, um, that was quite exciting for us because of how well he looked and how strong he was during the duration of the year. We really anticipated that he would be back. He had a year left. The Giants were going to pick up the option, and we felt that they would even extend him uh, a year or two. And uh, so we expected him back. And when he announced his retirement, you know, we were surprised, and yet we weren't surprised. Knowing him, knowing what his family means to him, knowing what his career means to him, knowing that he he got everything back. He was the comeback player of the year for the second time in his career, an all-star catcher, and it really was a fitting way for him to walk out on his own terms, uh, ending his 12-year career. So. Uh, we were surprised, but we really weren't surprised. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's really kind of how we felt. It's interesting because the Giants have some guys that are going to be hard for, forget just broadcasters, but for fans to to let go of. Because at some point, I know Brandon Crawford signed for another couple of years. You know, you don't know the situation with Belt. Uh, I, I think fans out there have embraced Evan Longoria, good guy, tremendous player, even though, you know, many years in the American League with Tampa. There's some iconic figures with with San Francisco, and as great a year as they just had, there's still going to be a transition, isn't there, Mike? Oh, definitely. I mean, when you think about uh, um, what these guys have achieved, and from the Giants' perspective, what Belt and Posey and Crawford achieved is just remarkable. I mean, this is the greatest era in the history of Giants baseball, not just San Francisco Giants, but I guess you could go back in New York and they were the they were the toast of the league uh, when they were winning world championships as the New York Giants. But I mean, it, it, it's kind of gotten harder because there are more teams, the travels different. I just think this is the most remarkable time in Giants history, and to watch these three guys. One by one, now all of a sudden start to walk out the door, having watched Matt Cain go and, and watching uh, Tim Linscombe go. Um, the Giants fans, you know, they, they're they great fans for many reasons, but they remember their heroes. And and that's the one thing that y'all, that everybody who ever plays this game wants to be. You want to be remembered. And uh, what these guys have done, uh, they certainly have become iconic figures. And, and it is. It's going to be very difficult to watch... Um, as we watched Watt Buster go, uh, it, it was tough, and it's going to happen with Bell. It's going to happen with uh, with. It's going to happen with Longoria. It just is. It's just you know, it's just the way. And that's and you're lucky if you're a player if that happens to you. From a ball player standpoint, Mike, you played 14 years in the big leagues. Ball players, ball players. You know what I mean? Like for you, I would think. Of guys you admire, I'm going to throw a name who's no longer there. Speaking of iconic giants, and I don't care how long he plays in Arizona or elsewhere, but Madison Bumgarner will always be an all-time giant. From your standpoint, um, 
Name, name the top three guys, if you will, or three or four off the top of your head. You go, I just admire everything about how they went about their business and who they were. Well, Bumgarner, uh, I mean, you know, he maintained the, the credibility of the starting pitching position. Uh, what he did in 2014, I don't know if we'll ever see again. I mean, that's something that we saw in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, where a starting pitcher would come back with two days rest, three days rest, come and relieve after pitching nine. Well, I thought that I thought that that was gone, and then we saw Bumgarner bring that back in the 2014 series. Um, he certainly is one of them. I mean, what Linscombe did uh, was remarkable, and he he had everything to do with the turn of the round turnaround of the attitude of this organization that Will Clark had in the 80s. Um, and then Buster, of course, is the centerpiece of all this. What he did when he first came up in in 2010. And the credibility he had as a person and a player on the field and in the clubhouse, in the clubhouse, you sensed that veteran players were in respect of this guy and they wanted his approval that they were good ball players. And that's something you don't see from a rookie. And, uh, and Buster had that quality. And, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, those are, those are guys that, you know, were remarkable. Barry Bonds, what he did during his tenure. Um, I mean, those are guys from my broadcasting perspective that I, I really, uh, you know, felt really lucky going to, to, to the ballpark every day watching them play. And then, uh, of course, you, you go back and you see what, uh, Mays and McCovey and Marichal did in that generation. Um, so we've had some incredible centerpieces to, uh, to be able to talk about if you're, and you have to feel that you're pretty lucky and pretty fortunate. Great perspective from, Mike Kruko on the Giants rivalry with the Dodgers and just how special and unique that season was, not only for the Giants, but also for the Dodgers and the fact that, you know, they won 106 games and these two franchises have been battling for, for well over a century. And this was an epic year. And then they meet in the postseason. It goes five games and, um, it was special. I, mean, I hope you were able to catch a lot of uh, those ball games in the postseason. And maybe I hadn't heard that thought yet that maybe they just wore each other out, and that's why you know the the Dodgers ended up losing ultimately to Atlanta. And you know, reading between the lines, I think Mike felt the same way that that you know even though the Giants he felt could have won it all, and that you know maybe after that series had they won in five games that, that they may have, uh, you know, run out of gas against Atlanta as well. Certainly playing without Brandon Belt didn't hurt. You know, the Dodgers had some injuries uh, also. We'll have part two next week. You don't want to miss it. He has some hysterical stories on his own career, some entertaining stories on Willie Mays that will make you laugh, um, and others as well. So you make sure uh, you join us for that one. Uh, next week. Also, a reminder as always to join uh, Patrick Lyons on the DNVR podcast. I'm with them uh, each week, and he's been down at the Arizona Fall League uh, doing outstanding work down there and providing uh, information and coverage on uh, the DNVR podcast, DNVR Rockies podcast, uh, five days a week. So there you go. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and I uh, hope your football teams win. Hope the Broncos continue on, and uh, we will uh, chat again, as I said, in seven days. Take care, stay well, everyone, and uh, we'll talk shortly.